Each year, we turn to celebrate some of the most capable and accomplished career federal civil servants, finalists for Service to America medals, known as the Sammies. Well, it's that time of year again. This is a signature program of the Partnership for Public Service, whose president and CEO, Max Steyer, joins me now. Max, good to have you back. It's great to be here. Thank you. And, you know, every year the Sammies do manage to inspire because, you know, out of a workforce of a couple of million, there are really some amazing people. And so there's never a shortage of candidates. This year, just give us a sense of the breadth of the nominations, where they came from, and what did it look like? So you're right. There is no shortage of amazing stories. You have two million people and you have the responsibility of our federal government to handle the full range of challenges that we face as a country. So you have everything this year from things that are top of news, like the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or you know major investments that we're making. The bipartisan infrastructure law actually requires then enormous amounts of implementation that the people at Department of Transportation and elsewhere are actually implementing. So you cover issues like that, but you also cover issues that are less well understood. A wonderful couple of young federal employees who are part of the critical team that is dealing with trying to get hostages back from other countries and really incredible work that they're doing. Or long-time issues such as how NASA deals with risk and understanding how to create a culture that both is able to innovate and ensure that we have safety. So the issues are broad and meaningful and all aspects of our society, and we have incredible people that we should be celebrating. Over the years, some of the ones that have impressed me that I've interviewed, and I've been covering this now for almost, well, how far do they go back? About 20 years now, right? Correct. Since you were in Union Station presenting way long time ago. But two that stand out in my mind are one was someone from the National Transportation Safety Board, now retired, who had figured out the cause of a TWA flight that burst into flames, Flight 800. And the other one was the FBI agents who many, many years later, decades later, solved and brought to justice the people involved in the Birmingham, Alabama church bombing back in the 1960s. Those people were still around and they were brought to justice. The theme there is just dogged determination and never wavering from the mission, no matter how long it takes. Yes, there are many, many, many highlights. One of the things that I find always quite remarkable is, you know, we've announced our finalists and we'll have a gale in the fall for the so-called winners. They're all amazing. And really to distinguish between the 27 that are honored here and then the six that get recognized in the fall, they're all incredible, amazing, wonderful, whatever adjective you want to use. And the American people should be grateful to have that kind of service. You know, there are a lot that stand out for me very early on the woman who started the Do Not Call Registry, which, you know, obviously we're in a slightly different world now, but for a very long time, it meant that literally hundreds of millions of Americans could have their meals in peace without the phone ringing. You know, the gentleman who helped eradicate polio in India. Then you have people like Tony Fauci, who clearly are extraordinary heroes, but two of his colleagues that, you know, were the designers of the vaccine that has kept so many, many, many Americans safe. So it's just amazing, the breadth of accomplishment And we need to both appreciate and invest in our government so we can deal with future problems. We're speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. And for those that might be learning about this for the first time, the new generation coming in, that 9% of feds under 30, just review the history of the program, Samuel Heyman's part in it, the late Samuel Heyman, and how this whole thing came to be. 
So we're 22 years old as an organization. This is one of the first things that we did. We also set up a coalition of universities to try to get talent into government called Call to Serve, which is now 700 universities and best places to work was pretty early on too. But we set this up. It was actually just the service to America Medals, not the Samuel J. Heyman service to America Medals. Uh, Sam was our founder 22 years ago. He decided that this is where he wanted to help. There are 1.5 million nonprofits out there and we're pretty much it that does this work. They're all doing important work on policy lanes. Our view is you get the government to do better and you actually help in all those areas that they're working on. He passed away a little over, I think, 13 years ago. And we decided as a way of honoring him that we would name the program in, in his name and the Sammies and Sam. So that obviously worked out pretty well in terms of alignment. But the concept was originally to create a program that honored federal employees as a mechanism of telling their stories to the public. And what we learned is that it actually had two very powerful purposes. The first, educating the public about what our government employees are doing, but equally important was really trying to create a recognition culture inside of government. And our understanding about how important that is has grown over the years. The FEPS, the best places, looks at that question about, do you believe your good work is recognized? And it's just not high enough in the federal government I think we believe organizations get better faster by focusing a lot of attention on what's good that can be replicated. I think it's true with kids as well. Positive reinforcement is, is more powerful than the negative. You want to identify problems, but you want to find the solutions. And those solutions are there. They're just not, they're not actually pulled up and, and communicated in a way that allows others to learn from them. And this is a rolling program because you've got to keep that feedstock coming in. So Anyone can nominate anyone. How does the nominations work in case people say, hey, this person here deserves this? Yeah, and thank you for raising that. The answer is that we will open up nominations for next year immediately following the announcement of the current winners. So this will be in mid-October, October 17. And as you just suggested, anyone can nominate. We don't take self-nominations anymore. We've actually had some very good self-nominations, just better from our end because we do a lot of due diligence to check out. And we actually engage the former honorees in doing that due diligence since they know the government best. I will note that sometimes people are loath to nominate someone because they're like, oh, there's no way they're going to beat someone who eradicated polio in India. And my recommendation is don't worry about whether you think someone's going to win or be a finalist nominate someone who you just think has done an amazing job. It's a vote of confidence in them. It's meaningful to them and irrespective of what happens next. And I actually have seen a lot of federal resumes that say nominated for Sammies. And it's a way of just saying thank you. So please have at it. It's really great to see the variety of stories. And we try to use those stories in other places, even beyond Sammies. Right. I think a lot of the general media that knows the politics of government, but they don't really understand the operations of government, that's helped educate them too. And I also want to draw a distinction between the Sammies and the Presidential Rank Award program. That's only open to senior executive service members, of which there are, what, 50,000 or so, roughly? Closer to 7,000 for SES. But yes, you are, you are correct on the distinction between the rank award, which is phenomenal and important and determined inside a government. We're doing this from the outside. And you know our focus is really on the concrete impact that it's had on the public, uh, someone, someone or some a team's um, you know, work. My view is the more the better. Like There are other uh, recognition programs. We would love to see more of them. We we have, again, a deficit in, of recognition in our government. So there are other programs out there that we support 
But besides the distinction that the SAMIs are available to any federal employee, not just SESers, there's also the fact that you have this big program around it. You're talking to me, and, you know, we go to the gala, and as you know, the Federal Drive interviews as many as we can fit in between now and the award ceremony. The Presidential Rank Award program, the White House puts out a PDF with a list of names. You have no idea what the people did or who they are, just where they work. And I think that seems like an opportunity that they could take some, let's put it this way, inspiration from how the Sammies are handled. Well, I mean, I think it's an important point that you raise. I think our government could do better in telling the stories of its achievements. And it's, you know, it can be tricky. The politics of it can be tricky. But the reality is that the public needs to hear about the great work that their federal employees are doing. And agencies, some do more in the way of investment in trying to tell those stories We need to see even more of it. In our research, one of our focuses now is the public's distrust of our government. And what we have found is that when you say federal government, people think about bickering politicians in Washington. They don't actually think about the 2 million career civil servants, 85% or so that are outside of the D.C. metro area. And they don't think about the people that we're honoring in SAMI. So we need to communicate those stories so the public really understands, you know, who their government actually is. And the distinction between those bickering politicians and the professionals that, you know, are dedicated, you know, often for their full career uh, to serving the public. So we are keenly interested in having those stories told, and we appreciate all that you've done in getting the message out. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. It's always great to have you on. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll post this interview together with a link to this year's Sammy's finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And again, I'll be interviewing a finalist each week here on the show until the winners are announced in September. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider 
leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.